You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Hello. How's everyone doing? Everyone right? Okay. Um, I've asked some people to come up on the stage, come up here. So we're going to kick this off nice and interactive. If I can have you spread evenly across the front of the stage. Right, we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Daniel. Um, over five weeks, and um, it's a great book. I think it's going to be an absolutely ace time looking at this together. Um, you might think, um, you know, the first sermon in a sermon series, you often get a lot of context, get a lot of history, get a lot of the setting. Today, we're just going to launch straight into the first scene. Um, I think this first scene has got loads and loads to apply to everyone in the room, and it applies to baptisms, and it applies to us giving our lives for God, so we're going to launch straight into it. But I thought, well, you can't start a sermon series without saying, why is this going to be good for us as a church to focus on this book? So, I want to excite you about five ways. I need one extra volunteer. Aiden, you can be the extra volunteer. Okay, you need to stand with your hands in the air like this. Perfect, great. Doing it amazingly. Okay, there are five quick reasons at the very start that I think this sermon series is going to be great for us. Where are we going to start? We're going to start here. Okay, so Anna's digging. When you go through a single book in the Bible, instead of just topical preaching, you go deep into one book. What you find is, as a church, we're able to go deeper into what that particular book is saying to us. More than just flitting around, this Daniel series over the next five weeks, we're going to go deep. I think that's going to be good for us as a church, Anna. Fantastic job. Okay, Phil here is reading the Bible. Phil's actually reading the Bible at home. I'm giving you advance warning. We're going to look at Daniel for five weeks. We're starting with chapter two, then three, then four, then five, then six. So here's a challenge for you. Wouldn't it be good for you to get ahead of the game? Why don't you geek out at home? Why don't you read a little bit around it? Why don't you go nerdy? Let's really focus in over the summer. What are you reading over the summer? Why don't you read Daniel like Phil? Okay, next up, strength. This book has this fantastic message throughout that God is in control. Let me tell you that a church that truly believes God is in control fears less, worries less, trusts more, celebrates more, and that's the type of church we want to be. So we're going to get this message of God is in control. We'll come to you last, Aidan. You just carry on doing that perfectly. Okay, here we've got an explosion. I want to tell you, Daniel is full of dynamite narrative. You can't sit here for the next few weeks and not think these are incredible stories. So it's going to blow your mind. That's what's happening over there. And finally, this perfect tower is the Shard. London as a city is similar to Babylon. So Babylon is where this book is set. It's a pluralistic society. People can believe whatever they want, all sorts of different beliefs. Pick and mix religion, I tell you. And it's a place where, actually, politically and socially, there's some hostility to God and to faith, and London's a bit like that. So if this book talks about that, we as a church that loves this city should pay a lot of attention. Are you convinced it's going to be worthwhile? If not, just look at this amazing acting. So thank you all very much. Let's have a nice round of applause for these guys. Okay, like I say, we're going to go into the context more another week. This week, we're launching straight into this story. So, it's going to come up on the screen, Daniel chapter 2. You might never have read Daniel before. You might have read it a million times. Let's throw ourselves into this story. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Daniel went into Arioch, who's a guy who the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Daniel was one of these wise men. Daniel went and said to him, 
Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in front of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. I will show the king the interpretation for his dream. So a little context, Nebuchadnezzar said, if nobody, if none of the wise men can interpret these dreams I'm having that are keeping me up, I'm going to kill you all. And Daniel's one of those wise men. Then Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Okay, and we're going to the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image like a statue. This image is mighty and of exceeding brightness. It stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, but partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not even a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw, the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it will break into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation sure. Okay, two topics today from this chapter. Two topics. One, what is this dream and why do we care? And the second is this, what is this stone and why do we care? So, first up, let me tell you, I'm wondering the question, why do we care? We want to try and apply this dream to our church. But the people who first read about this story in Daniel... Daniel was writing to the people of God. They cared a heck of a lot about this scene. They cared a heck of a lot because the church, the people of God, having been together in a community, had been ripped out of that place, taken into this evil, corrupt um, city called Babylon, ruled by this guy called Nebuchadnezzar. And they're there, hopeless, helpless, downtrodden. Their culture has been ripped apart and trodden into the dirt. And what Daniel says, not just in this chapter, but over the course of the book, is I'm writing all this stuff down for you so you can see God is still on the scene. God hasn't forgotten you. God is still in control. And if you want a theme over the whole of the book, it's a little bit like this. None of what's happening to you is a surprise to God. He knows exactly what's going on. So they cared about it a lot. But I guess the question I'm asking for us today is why does it apply to us? All right, let's look at this question then. What is the dream and why do we care? Well, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the guy having the dream. He's the guy staying up all night, sleepless. It is true to say that over history, historians tell us this guy Nebuchadnezzar is probably in the top 20 when it comes to rulers of empires, powerful men in history. You know, he's a top dog. 
He has got power and influence. He's got an incredible empire. One of the um, seven wonders of the ancient world was his kingdom. But he can't sleep. It's a bit of a leveler, isn't it? It doesn't really matter where you are in society. If you can't sleep, you, you still can't really sleep. You're still going to be tired. It doesn't matter how rich you are. And he can't sleep because of this. He's having these dreams. And in his dreams, he's unsettled because what he's seeing is not good news for him. But he's also aware that these dreams aren't just natural. So he's saying to people around, can you tell me what they mean? He is aware of something of the divine hitting him in his life, in his luxury. Something of God, something deeper is hitting him. Here's a quick takeaway for you. You might not take anything else from this sermon, but if you are somebody who's a skeptic, if you're someone who's on the edge of church, not sure what's going on, sometimes, in my experience, from people I've known who've sat in that same place, they suddenly become aware that there's something deeper going on in their life. Something of the divine is just niggling away. If that's you today, great. That's a good sign. That means there's good news for you. But what is going on here with Nebuchadnezzar is he is seeing a dream of this colossus, this image. It's like a statue, this massive statue. And why is that not good news? Well, actually, he's always wanted the world to see him as a colossus, as the big boss man, as the man who's got everything. He's always wanted himself to be known worldwide as this colossus. But in the dream, the whole colossus is reduced to dust and blown away. So not good news for him. (laughs) The story moves on then. He's saying, all right, I need people in this empire to come and tell me what this dream really means. To be honest with you, I think he's got a gut instinct that it's not good news anyway, before anybody even interprets the dream, because this colossus turns into dust. But he's saying, I need to be sure. Someone tell me what's going on. And in steps Daniel. Daniel's like of royal blood in Israel. But remember, Daniel's one of the guys who's come out of Israel, out of the people who got into Babylon. So he's kind of in the culture. He's been brought up the last few years as part of the political system, as part of the structure, as part of the culture of Babylon. And so he's got the king's ear in a way. But he's different to everyone else in that he's the one guy who's got the direct line to God. He's the one guy who's got the actual answer to what's going on. So he prays for an answer. He says, God, show me what this dream's about. And boom, God speaks and says, I'll give you the interpretation. Now you go and chat to this guy, Neb. I never know with Nebuchadnezzar, you know, would people call him Ned? It's got Chad in the middle. Would it be Chad? Sure, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's a long word to type when you're writing all that out. Anyway, so he goes up to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, oh, all right, God's given me the interpretation of the dream. And what he says is, effectively, one day, There's going to be a kingdom that no man has made, and that kingdom is going to depose your kingdom. It's going to replace your kingdom. It's going to effectively smash all of the systems and kingdoms of the world. And so, Nebuchadnezzar, your empire is going to be about as impressive as dust. Take that. The kingdom that Daniel is talking about, that isn't made by man, it's not a stretch for us to work out what this is. This is the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is something across the whole of the Bible that comes up loads and loads. Right? Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he uses the term kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God over a hundred times. So it's not just Daniel that's talking about it. It's not a kingdom of oppression or fear like in Babylon. It's one of justice. It's one of hope for the future. And you'll find now from the rest of this sermon, I'm going to talk about the kingdom of hope. Because I think... 
If you like, this whole story, in a way, just says this one thing. Hope wins. The kingdom of hope wins. So Daniel says, effectively, to Nebuchadnezzar, all right, this is a problem. You think you've got a problem? I'm telling you, it is definitely a problem. There's a God in heaven who can reveal secrets. Remember that phrase comes up? comes up? There's a God in heaven who can reveal secrets, and Nebuchadnezzar, this is your secret. As long as you build your own power, status, influence, wealth, reputation, fame, comfort, luxury, and dominion for yourself, it's going to crumble. It is going to crumble. But worse than that, Nebuchadnezzar, what you're experiencing now is your future hope and dreams are being rocked by an underlying fear, an underlying sleeplessness and nervousness because you know ultimately from this point onwards your kingdom is fragile. You've got clay feet. You've got crumbling foundations. So from this point onwards, now you've heard this interpretation, not only is this going to happen, but you are just going to know that everything you've got is temporary. All right, so uh, the second part of this question is, why do we care? That's kind of the story. Why do we care? Why do we, if we're a Christian in the room, if we're a skeptic in the room, if we're getting baptized today, why do we care? Why does London care? Why is this applicable to 2017? Well, let me put it this way. People move to a big city like Babylon or move to a big city like London with a dream, with a dream of some sort. They want to create, we want to create a dazzling image of ourselves, sometimes to impress other people, sometimes to impress ourselves. People in a big city can spend a huge amount of time and money on building a dazzling image, a dazzling statue of some sort. Now, I've asked three people to come up with some bits of paper. We're going to make this nice and visual. I've got three people here who, this isn't necessarily their dream. Come on, up you come. But these people personify people who live in London. People who would have lived in Babylon, but certainly people who live in London. And they've got three different dreams. So what we've got is appearance, popularity, and career. We'll start with Maddie. So Maddie might spend a huge amount of time and money on building a career. Something career-wise, wealth-wise, to show the world. And you can do that in London, can't you? You can show the world. Now, it might be to impress herself or her friends or her family. Often, if you're building a big career in wealth, you're trying to impress people you don't even know, people you've not even met. That's the nature of it. So Maddie builds her own statue, her own career. But as we're going to find out, it's going to end in dust. Bad news for you, Maddie. It's going to end in dust. Okay, Wade. Wade's going to spend a huge amount of time and money on building something, what he's building something is popularity. Is in the eyes of other people, he wants to become a little bit more and more like a celebrity. You know, he wants likes and followers and things like that. He wants to build for himself people that love him, a reputation. Now, the truth is, he can do that, and that's going to take a lot of time and money and investment and attention and energy. But as we're going to see, unfortunately for him, A dazzling statue, however great it is, is temporary, not permanent. He can't take it with him anywhere. And what we read in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that it's not just that it goes to dust, but it is blown away and there's no trace of it ever to be seen again. Not great if you're trying to be famous. Okay, appearance, Tim. (laughs) Okay, so for Tim, although he says there's no effort needed for his appearance... (laughs) It's possible to be a person in a city like London investing time, money, and energy 
to get your own appearance right. Beauty or your own appearance. Going to the gym. Buying the right clothes. Things that are more extreme than that even. Building your own statue. But as we'll see in a second, it's going to come down. And more than that, it's going to cause sleepless nights. Trying to build your own statue, trying to do a Nebuchadnezzar, trying to build your own kingdom, is going to give you a lot of sleepless nights. Okay, for Maddie, flip that over. The reason Maddie's got sleepless nights is because when you try and build your career and your job and your wealth, you're worried when you wake up in the morning about the markets. What's happening with your job? Where's your job security? What's your bank balance? There's reason to be to have a lack of peace, to be anxious and nervous like Nebuchadnezzar was. That's not good. That's not the way you want to live your life. That's not the way it's meant to be. Okay, Wade, what you got? Opinions. If you care most about popularity and you're trying to build your own kingdom here in London, you're going to worry a lot about what other people think of you. You're going to have a few sleepless nights because that person said this or that person thinks that. You're going to wake up in the morning worried about people's opinions. And appearance. If you're trying to build your own kingdom, your own appearance, you're going to worry about what you see in the mirror especially as you get older. You're going to worry that actually I'm not the way I want to be and I've got a sense of discontent and I can't ever quite get that fulfilled. Thank you ever so much for demonstrating that for us. So Nebuchadnezzar is anxious and sleepless, pursuing this dazzling appearance. People to a city, people move to a city with dreams. But Daniel says this, and this chapter says this, and this book says this, and this Bible says this. Unless you're building in the kingdom of hope, it's temporary. Unless you're building God's kingdom, you are hopelessly stuck because you've got foundation and feet of clay. So back to Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so he hears this phrase that came up on the screen. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another person. And Daniel writes this down, and he gives it to the first readers. Remember who the first readers are? The, ch- the early church, you know, the people back in the day, God's people in a hopeless situation. And what's the message they hear from it? They hear this. You know what? Nebuchadnezzar's got this huge kingdom, but because it's not the kingdom of hope, it's not long-term. Because it's not God, it crumbles. And that's good news for them. That's really good news for them. There's hope. There's a kingdom of hope still to come. Hope will win. And the main difference between Daniel and his mates and the rest of the people in Babylon isn't that some of them are building a kingdom and some of them aren't. It's that Daniel and his friends are building a kingdom that's going to last forever. They're building this kingdom of hope. They haven't got sleepless nights. Everybody else there is building this empire, this kingdom for Nebuchadnezzar or for themselves. It's going to crumble away. Everybody's building a kingdom of some sort, you and me. But are you building it for the kingdom of hope, for God's kingdom, or are you building your own kingdom? All right, so this kingdom, what does that mean? Well, we'll look onto this thing about the stone, but in a a nice sentence, you could say the kingdom of God is a culture, it's a system, a government, a community, a set of priorities, a way which is birthed by God and built by God, not based on oppression, but justice. Not on war, but on peace. Not on clay foundations, but built on God. That's the kingdom of hope. And it's a totally different thing. And that takes us to this question. What is this stone? What is this stone? Have I got that little stone around, Maddie? I put a stone on Maddie's chair and then she sat on it. That was my fault. Sorry, Maddie. Okay, so there's this little stone in the dream, isn't there? Just a little one. 
carved out. And what, is, what does the dream say? It's not carved out of anything man-made. It's something supernatural. It's nothing like the statue, which is all man-built. No, it's something supernatural. So before Daniel, I'm just going to keep holding this stone because this is what it's all about. Before Daniel, you get in the Psalms this picture. And so the Psalm writers write about a king, a king that's going to come. And what they say is this king is going to bring all nations, people from all nations to him. And he's going to crush and depose any evil rulers or evil nations. The Bible describes this king and his influence, his rule and his system as being a beautiful combination of righteousness where there's injustice. It's amazing because it's beauty instead of devastation. This king is going to bring a kingdom that's peace where there's conflict, unity where there's division, forgiveness where there's sin, healing where there's sickness, worship where there's idolatry. It's this beautiful picture that the Bible paints. But at the same time, also in the Psalms, it talks, the writer talks about that king is going to cry, God, why have you forsaken me as people nail his hands and feet? And you think, oh, how do those two work together? We've got this glorious picture of this amazing king and kingdom, but you've got this lowliness and humility, this suffering. So you've got this huge thing, almost like a mountain, and you've got this little thing, humble like a stone. You would be forgiven at the end of the Old Testament of reading all of the stuff that was written about this great kingdom and thinking what's going to happen is God is going to send a massive messianic warrior, a military leader to come and bring, bosh, a mountain which crushes everything. And it's all going to be done like that. And every ruler and all the wrong and all the sin and everything is just going to go like that because a mountain's going to crush. But what does this dream say? Does it say that a mountain comes? No, it says it starts with a stone. We get to the mountain later on. The stone grows to a mountain, but it starts with a stone. Okay, so in this dream, you've got probably the least valuable material out of all of the materials. You've got gold and iron and bronze and silver, and then you've got a rock. And actually, that's the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm asking this question, what's a stone and why do we care? Let me unpack why we care, why any of this matters. I think it applies to us if we're getting baptized today. I think it applies to us if we've been a Christian a long time. I think it applies for us if we're just looking in. Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king. And he, at the same time, is everything that's been promised in the big kingdom and lowly. So Jesus is ultimately the golden perfection. None of us will ever build our own kingdom to perfection, but Jesus is the ultimate golden one to worship without any vulnerable foundations. But he comes to earth like this stone. In the eyes of the world, he comes to the earth poor, not valuable, not highly respected, not beautiful. And what, is, what do we read in the New Testament about Jesus? He's like the stone that the builder rejected. He's not even a good stone. And so he comes in this way. But at the same time, he comes decisively to change the world and to start a revolution. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't amazing and isn't amazing. He is. But I just want to unpack what does this kingdom look like? It starts like this and grows. So the way the kingdom works is Jesus comes in humility to serve, to give. But the impact of his influence, his justice, of Jesus' peace, of Jesus' truth, The impact of Jesus' love, his grace, and the gospel starts small, and it grows, and it grows, 
and it grows and it grows. And we as a church sit here and part of the journey and it's growing and it's getting bigger and it will continue to grow. So God's kingdom, when it first comes, it's not high profile, it's not showy. You might feel like, oh, I live here in London as a Christian, and you know what? The God of the Bible and faith is not particularly highly valued in this city. It's not particularly showy. It's not necessarily thought of as beautiful or powerful. But let me tell you, it grows, and it grows. All right. It's easy, isn't it, to think, all right, we live in Europe, we live in the West, we live in the Northern Hemisphere. Where is all this growth? <laughs> Where is this kingdom that's growing? Richard, telling me that the kingdom of God is growing, it's advancing, it's increasing. From Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming, it's getting bigger. Where is all of that happening? Let me tell you, it's not necessarily in England. I'll give you a few facts. The Washington Post said a couple of years ago in an article that over the last hundred years, Christians grew from less than 10% of Africa's population to today over 500 million. A conservative estimate says that 10,000 conversions take place each day in China alone. That's one country. It might not be in London, but let me tell you, it's growing. Well, you think that's good. It's thought that in Latin America, that number's 30,000 a day. 30,000 a day. Let me tell you that in 1900, Korea had no Protestant church, but now six new churches open every day in South Korea, And it's the site of some of the world's largest churches with more than 800,000 people per church. (laughs) And you think, okay, that sounds like pretty good growth. Okay, let's keep going. In Angola, in recent history, in the last decade, there was a day where 10,000 people were baptized in one day. We're going to go for two today. It's going to be awesome. You know, we're going to have some baptism. 10,000 people in one day. If you consider that at the time that Jesus comes as a stone, there are a few hundred people following him. That looks like growth to me. That makes me think, you know what? This isn't a kingdom that's going anywhere. This is a kingdom that's growing to a mountain that's going to change the world. So, Redeemer, I want us to be mature, Bible-believing Christians. And that involves us not just seeing the things immediately around us, but seeing ourselves in the context of history that God's kingdom is growing. And let me tell you this, keep this in perspective. There will be a day where there's a cutoff. There will be a day where the mountain is at its biggest. And at that day, when Jesus comes again, no ruler and no kingdom, no political system we see now, no government we know now, no oppression will have anything left. Not just dust, but dust that's blown away and no remnant left. But the work that Jesus is doing is gradual at the moment. So let me sum this all up as we lead into baptisms. My summary is just this. Hope wins. Okay. Daniel's interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he lays out that, Nebuchadnezzar, you've got the wrong foundation, but there's a coming time where God's going to rule the world. He's going to come first as a small, humble solution, but it's going to be revolutionary. And I'm just going to explain this to close in five ways. So the first one, first way I want to look at this is Nebuchadnezzar's life. We'll see how hope wins. So Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if you can see all that on the screen, he starts off thinking he's strong. He thinks he's the Dom. But then he soon he becomes sleepless when he finds out that he's got weak foundations. And then, soon enough, his kingdom's forgotten. How many people these days study Nebuchadnezzar in a book? And ultimately, on that final day, everything he ever built will be swept away. 
It's not a great trajectory, is it, for Nebuchadnezzar? It's not great. But I would extend this to wealthy businessmen building empires now. I'd extend this to political leaders, especially those who oppose faith, especially those with an agenda that is anti or hostile to God. I'd say, ultimately, they're going to have some sleeplessness, and it's all going to be blown away. I'd say this is also true of celebrities building their own reputation and fame. Anybody building fame in the world at the moment it's going to lead to sleeplessness. They're going to be forgotten and it's going to be blown away. Because hope wins. The kingdom of hope, not their kingdom, will win out in the end. Let me pause just for a second on this one. It's possible from, you know, people I know talking to me, for there to be an impression that Christianity is just for the weak. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a weak guy. The Bible here isn't speaking necessarily saying that People who are weak and need a crutch should find Jesus. It's saying that people who've got everything, in the top 20 rulers in history, they're missing the big thing. Their life is going to be different if they can translate their energy, time, and their kingdom building from themselves to something with eternity to look forward to, something of eternal significance. If you're here and you think, I'm strong, I've got stuff together, I don't need Jesus, let me tell you, you're missing out on building something that's going to last forever, on peace instead of sleeplessness. Okay, so that takes us on to the second one then, individuals. So an individual coming to know Jesus changes from building their own kingdom to building God's kingdom. And suddenly they've got a peace. Suddenly they've got something of the kingdom of hope in their life. Suddenly they go from just building, knowing that they're building something temporary, to building something of God's. And they're not just building, but they're seen by God as a beautiful golden statue themselves. They don't need to build up to dazzle because God loves them. They dazzle in the first place. And so we get to the point where actually what a Christian is doing, what we're doing for Christians here is building something of God's kingdom, and we have got an expectation that what we're doing is going to increase. The good stuff we're doing, and that's like investing in people, investing in the church community, investing in your area around you, praying for, loving, caring for the vulnerable and the needy, that stuff's going to have an eternal impact. I think that's good news for us. If we start to build what God's building, we don't need to worry about our own kingdom. We can find satisfaction, peace, hope, and increase in what God's doing. And ultimately, it's eternal. We don't have to worry about it blown away. All right, three quick other ones, then Redeemer. We forget thinking about us individually, but as a church, we build God's kingdom, and it helps us have perspective like the church, the people in Israel taken out and concerned by what's going on. When as a church we see hard times or we see difficulty, we can have this long view that what God is doing on the earth, although it might not be right now in London, is growing and building, has momentum and will increase. We can have hope, and we can, as a church, let me tell you, we can have a faith that we're going to increase, that we're going to grow, because that's the nature of going from a stone to a mountain is growth. That's part of our story as a church. It's going to be something that lives on for eternity. Okay, and then two more. The global church. I think if you look worldwide, God's growing his kingdom, and there can be unity between churches and denominations, because we're not trying to build our own kingdoms, are we? We're trying to build God's kingdom. And so we can have hope that the global church is going to increase and that's going to be something with eternal impact. And lastly, society. Redeemer, we don't want to be church here just looking in on ourselves. We want to be looking at what's going to happen to this borough, to this city, to this, to this world. 
Well, society starts off broken as people start to try and build their own kingdoms. And let me tell you, nothing of individual kingdom building and fame and fortune can fix society. So what needs to happen is people need to start building God's kingdom and seeing God's work, God's church, come into the fore in influence. And so what happens is we see God's going to influence this city. And that means redeeming things. That means not just redeeming people, but society and structure and politics and arts and influence. The wealthy, all kinds of things will be redeemed because that's the trajectory of God's kingdom. And ultimately, on that final day, they will be restored. And there'll be a day when you can look and say, you know what? God's mountain is here. We're at that final day. It's perfect. Okay, I'd love to just pray for us, and then we'll lead on to baptism. So, Father, we just want to thank you. Thank you so much that what you're building here in Redeemer, what you're building in our lives, what you're building worldwide, it's not going to be blown away. It's something of eternal significance. We thank you for inviting us to be part of it. We thank you for those getting baptized today. We want to thank you, Father, that what they're sowing into, what they're building now, what they're laying down and leaving behind, in comparison, what you're putting in place in their life is something that is of peace, something that is of hope. Sleepless nights, anxiety, fear about what others think, that can stay behind today as they move forward into building what you're doing, throwing themselves in as builders of your kingdom. Thank you, God. We want to pray for anybody who's here today, feels like they're looking in on the outside, a skeptic as to whether any of this stuff even makes sense. We just want to pray, Father, in every way, draw them to you. Give them a sense that even if life is good, there's so much more to be found in building something of eternal significance that gives us peace, hope, and increase now on earth. It's all because of you, Jesus. It's because of what you've done, and we love you. Amen.